everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Forecast Fest. I feel like there should be fireworks, but regardless, <laughs> we're so glad that you decided to join us. I'm CNN's Kate Baldwin, here with my colleagues, John Avlon. Hola. And Terry Enton. Shalom. <laughs> the goal for the Forecast Fest is to bring you all the data and analysis that you need to get smart and stay smart on what is happening in this already crazy election season. So we hope you subscribe to the podcast and that you join us over and over and over again on this wild ride. This week, we are coming to you from Detroit, Michigan, the site of the big second round of the Democratic primary debates hosted by CNN. So we're going to start off by giving you the lay of the land as the candidates head into the debate, what the data tells us about the real impact of these debates, and what we really think is going to happen on the debate stage. Yes, we do have a crystal ball. We're gonna- <laughs> An orb, if you will. Oh, I like it, thank You're you. Welcome. We also are gonna take a deep dive into a subject that is close to Harry's heart, how reliable the polls really are at this point in the race. And also, we're going to tackle one of the biggest unanswered questions of the campaign so far. Is all that matters to Democrats in the primary really who can beat Donald Trump? If so, what does that actually look like? All right. To the forecast. Yeah. Harry, what's the latest? Oh, Kalidokali, as I rewind myself and try to give it to you in a fashion that can not only be understood by the Martians, but by the human beings as well that sit around me around the table. Our Mar- the Martians give us rave reviews, so the, don't knock them. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the Martians, especially Marvin the Martian. So th- these are taken from my um, power rankings with Chris Eliza. These are not completely statistically based, but they are based in numbers. And we we have a top 10. And let's get started on that. You know, number 10, Andrew Yang, businessman, the Yang gang, you know, universal basic income. Number nine, Julian Castro, the former HUD secretary under President Obama. Obviously, he's the only Latino that's running in this race right now. Numero eight is Beto O'Rourke, the former representative from the great state of Texas, and he, my friends, has really fallen because he was at number two all the way back in December. And look, he's now down to eight and keeps on dropping. Number seven, the senior senator from the great state of Minnesota, right next door to the great state of Wisconsin, which I don't know why I said that, but it is the case, um, Amy Klobuchar. (laughs) Number six, the junior senator from the great state of New Jersey, Cory Booker, who I'm going to be very interested to see how he does in these upcoming debates. Number five, and this is a big difference between five, one through five, and six through ten. Six through ten is really on a tier on its own versus five and up. We start getting more into the top tier, the top two tiers, is Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Number four is the junior senator from the great state of Vermont, Bernie Sanders, who obviously ran back in 2016 and is looking perhaps to improve upon his second place finish. He obviously doesn't want to do worse. Number three (laughs) is the junior senator from the state of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, who has been improving her stature recently and has moved up in our rankings. Number two, the senator from the state of California, Kamala Harris, who really did well in that first debate and has jumped up in our rankings, but still number one, retaining his spot in our power rankings is the former vice president, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. And what I should say, a key point to mention is all the candidates that I just listed off are likely to appear in the September debate. Those not just listed are unlikely to appear in the September debate. And of course, Joe Biden has maintained his top spot over the last few of these rankings going into our CNN debates. There you have it. That's just 
brutal to make that prediction because there's going to be, I mean, the, the herd's going to get culled, but take a look at the folks that means that aren't going to make it. It's not just your it's Marianne Williamson. It's basically everybody. That's yeah. exactly, and no, I mean, you, you don't hate on my girl Marianne Williamson. Look, she has the best memes Crystals. of the entire campaign today. She also had some very strong debate moments in the first round of debates. Um, Love. My point is, check it out. The number of senators who are going to be Tostada. You're going to have the mayor of Indiana's fourth largest city, no disrespect, in, rather than the mayor of New York, probably. Uh, you are going to have, uh, you know, Kristen Gillibrand, Colorado senator and governor, all on the cut room floor, potentially. That's stunning. So these folks are going to have to do something big tomorrow night to break out. Okay, so, but let's look at the front runner. Biden is very clearly John the front runner, as you've seen in Harry's rankings throughout. What does that mean I wonder for debate night one and two, to be quite honest. Is it is there any way that anyone's not going to be targeting Joe Biden? It'll be interesting to see whether on debate night one they shoot at the phantom simply because he's the front runner. Uh, debate night two, that's the big question. Obviously, the big moment out of the first round of debates was Harris taking on Biden, yeah. really landing a punch. Biden reeling and feeling really personally betrayed, saying, you know, I thought she was my friend. She was friends with Bo. You know, you know, you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. But he's going to be right between Booker and Harris, who've been turning their fire on him. And I think the highest stakes debate for anybody are Joe Biden. He is in first place, but he's got to show that he can rebound from a mediocre, I don't think a disastrous, but not a strong first debate. I if he falls, he could be toast. I think the stakes are actually higher for everybody else. But Harry... One thing that seems clear in your rankings as we look at them is that debates matter. Yeah. Kamala Harris was not at number two until the first round of debates. Yeah, absolutely true. We saw her. She was averaging 7% in the polls prior to the first debate. She jumped all the way up to 17%. Joe Biden was averaging about 30%. He dropped down to 25%. So there was clearly movement. Five points for Biden, 10 points for Harris. But one thing I should point out is a debate bounce is not necessarily something that can sustain itself because Kamala Harris in the last few polls has seen her numbers slide back more towards the low teens than the high teens, while Biden's numbers seem to be recovering into the high 20s, low 30s. So one of the big questions as we start talking about the debates here is whether or not there's anyone who can maintain their momentum. But I also would argue the counter of John to exactly what you're saying is that the people who have most to lose is anyone who is not on your ranking list right now because after these debates, the threshold to get into the next round in September doubles. I mean, you got you have to have 130,000 unique donors. That's double what it is for this. And also the polling threshold is... You need four qualifying polls and you need 2% in those polls versus just three polls with 1%. So in sum, everything doubles next time. And that is impossible if you aren't on the debate stage. They, yeah. And, and, and so those folks, look, this is do or die. This is, you know, you are got to stand out to survive in this cycle, this debate cycle. And that's a big deal. I do want to point out one new face on the stage, Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Super important. Barely missed the last one. I think really got cheated out of a position. He is Because he crucial. got in race late. He got in yeah. super late. He had well, he had three polls, but one of them was an online poll, and so he was DQ'd. Here's the deal. He won re-election on Montana in a cycle that uh, Donald Trump won that state by 20 points. And Sarah Val has a great op-ed in the Times we can review about him. And, and he's a really, you know... Just paint by numbers, he's exactly the kind of candidate Democrats should be paying attention to. Can he compensate for getting in this late? He needs to have a big breakout moment. But keep your eyes on Bullock because he's somebody who's done something that defies political gravity right now. And Democrat. defies everything that any other Democrat that has a quality that no other Democrat has on this stage. Which exactly. is one in a state that Donald Trump won. And that 
Yeah, he is going to be fascinating. Yep. Okay, so now that we know how the top candidates rank heading into the debates, let's talk about what we're looking for in the opening debate, debate night one. I think it's almost impossible to remember who exactly is on stage each night. Can you please remind us, John? I'll uh, I'll be your waiter and tell you Thank who's you on the menu. I can't even. You're yeah. in uh, what Aretha Franklin called detois. Uh, <laughs> so let's go stage uh, left onwards. You've got Marianne Williamson, my girl, uh, former spiritual guru to Oprah, who would uh, normally not have any uh, reason to be running for president. But she's really carving out a powerful niche for certain people named Kate Baldwin and who live in Los Angeles. She she had a powerful message for the Democratic Party. It's not about policy. It's about personality. And, and you love. take on Donald Trump. And love. and love. And she would also call New Zealand first. But anyway, keep going. <laughs> Tim Ryan, a congressman from Youngstown, Ohio, my mom's hometown. Uh, I think a great message, having trouble getting traction. Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota, trying to do the centrist, responsible voice. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, one of the real stunning breakouts of the cycle so far raised a ton of money um, in, in the cycle, and he's the mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana. Bernie Sanders, uh, the runner-up last time around. Elizabeth Warren, a lot of big mo behind Elizabeth Warren. She's been eating into Sanders' support to some extent. Beto O'Rourke, fallen star against Ted Cruz. John Hickenlooper, the most curious cat on the stage. He's actually a fascinating dude, a great two-term nice governor of Colorado. Guy. Really fascinating. Um, and, and he was a great mayor of Denver, helped turn uh, Colorado from a conservative state to a purple, if not blue. Um, He's been getting no traction. Uh, and John Delaney, uh, three-term congressman from Maryland, uh, trying to carve out the moderate uh, with a blue-collar background. And the aforementioned Steve Bullock of Montana, two-term governor of Montana, state that Donald Trump won by 20 points. Harry, the biggest showdown going in is clearly the potential clash of the progressives, or what people would hope is going to be a clash of progressives, but they're actually really good friends, so I don't know how that's going to play out. Are they? Warren, they say. They say they're they good say. friends. But it's then again, like... I say I'm good friends with you. <laughs> and no, I always ask no about your memories of vaudeville. No one who was pointing at John. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about the polo grounds, Harry. Stop. Sorry, we'll deal with this sorry. later. Vaudevillian. Um, <laughs> Harry, where are the numbers right now in the progressive lane of uh, Bernie versus Elizabeth? Yeah, I mean, if you were to look right at 2016, you would have seen that Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton among very liberal voters by about 15 percentage points. 57 to 43%. I guess it's 14 percentage points, if we're making it exact. You should be. And that's, that's, that's I guess job. that is my job. <laughs> One job. Um, but if you were to look at the polls now among very liberal voters, what do we see? If we average the most recent polls, we see actually Elizabeth Warren out in front with 29 percent. Kamala Harris was at 21 percent, and Bernie Sanders was at 19 percent. So it's pretty what? clear hmm. that Warren has been eating into Sanders' base among that very liberal part. And it's going to be interesting to see if whether Sanders tries to grab any of that back or whether or not they're just going to be buddy-buddy and Sanders is going to be more than willing to just let Warren take the spotlight. But you, you have given me one of my favorite stats of the cycle, and I've quoted you over and over, that only 17% of Democratic primary voters identify as very liberal. So how big is that lane between Warren and Sanders, and how is she effectively eating his lunch? Well, I, you know, I think that's a, What exactly kind of lunch the, is it? That's ex well, first off, it's a, a cheeseburger, medium rare, fries on the side. Medium uh, rare, not even close. It's Me totally not a cheeseburger. But here's the thing, right? That's exactly the point. There's a reason why Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are running basically in a three-way tie for second place with Senator Harris while Biden's up ahead. It's because they're all fighting over this very liberal block that doesn't make up that large percentage of the electorate. Now, whether it's 17 percent or 21 percent or 22, it's about a fifth of all voters. And that, simply put, is not large enough to win a nomination. It's going to be interesting to see whether or not there's any real 
effort to sort of build from that block from either one of these candidates. Hmm. Well, and one key demographic that was huge in 2016, especially in places like Michigan, where we are right now, is white voters without a college degree. What are you seeing, at least to this point, Harry, with that? This, to me, is just such a fascinating Why? sort of nugget. Because Elizabeth Warren has been running this populist-centric campaign, right? And you'd think that she might appeal to white voters without a college degree because of her economic plans to try and lift everybody up. But in fact, Elizabeth Warren is actually running considerably stronger among whites with a college degree. She's running closer to about 20% with of that. With a college degree. With a college degree versus just 10% among white voters without a college degree. Now flip it with Bernie Sanders, right? He's actually doing considerably better among whites without a college degree than whites with a college degree. So they're in, they're the inverse of each they're other? They're the inverse yeah. of each other. But that's not surprising. Bernie did really well Why? with whites without a college degree last time around. Remember, he and Donald Trump sort of got the horseshoe theory of the yes. election last time. And this is my shocked face about the former Harvard professor yeah, exactly not right. doing terribly well with non-college educated What college whites. did you go to, Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a liberal a place with very good pizza. Oh, my God. Um... This is something I want to get your guys. I I spoke to Debbie Dingell, who is a liberal Democrat that has a big part of her district here. Is oh, these voters we're talking about here? White uh, voters without a college degree, and she says that she is just as worried now as she was in 2016 about the Democratic appeal to these voters. There, she says that 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 Democrats are not talking about what they should be and what those voters care about, that they need to be talking more about trade, but I actually think that's a bit of a slippery slope since like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump see mm -hmm. pretty closely eye to eye on trade. Um, but I thought that was really interesting because she sounded the alarm in 2016 about Donald Trump's appeal to white working class voters mm -hmm. in Michigan, and she's a, she's concerned this time too. I, I think, you know, if you look at that stage on debate night one, you essentially see that besides Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, you do see a lot of candidates who are going to try and make outreaches, and perhaps Marion Williamson as well, outreaches into that more sort of white working class party electorate. But so far, the debate in the Democratic Party has really been to, with the exception of Joe Biden, two white voters with a college degree not reaching out to those white voters without a college degree. And we saw it last time around when everyone was raising their hand about, you know, uh, health care for um, illegal immigrants, who, for, for immigrants who yeah. are here illegally. And it's going to be interesting to see whether on night one, some of these more moderate candidates try and actually make an outreach. First, let's not forget that because it is a combo meal deal, right? On combo meal one, deal. Because you've Hold got on. the clash of the progressives, but you have there are moderates on that stage. You were listing them out. If, if you took out Sanders and Warren at Act tonight and Williamson, this would be moderate night, quote it's unquote. Um, and, and, you know, because Klobuchar is trying to run there, Buttigieg's message is very much designed to appeal. Ryan, Hickenlooper, Delaney, Bullock, all explicitly. The problem is the centrists have had a real hard time getting traction. Keep in mind that when Democrats flipped Macomb County, which is the iconic swing county in Michigan, Bill Clinton did it in 1992, reaching out to the forgotten middle class and moderates. And um, Debbie Dingell warned last time around that this was a problem. So did Bill Clinton. And the party ignored her. Pay attention to Macomb. Pay attention to the swing voters in swing counties of swing states if you want an election, win an election, which is why you don't go far left. Mm -hmm. why, why issues of electability, which we'll discuss soon, matter. Oh, thank you. What You're a, welcome for What that a segue. nice segue. An so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, after talking about all of these polls, we're actually going to look at whether we should be taking any of them seriously, <laughs> given how far out the country still is from first votes. And then the big 
electability question. What does it mean in the Democratic primary this time? Is it really all that matters? That's up next. We'll be right back. Um, so, Harry, we are just now just under 190 days until the Iowa caucuses, which is, I think everyone can agree on one thing, that's a long way off. Oh, come on. We're right around the corner. Sure. An eternity, not only in election politics, but an eternity in the current news cycle, if we're going to be honest. Um, but it does seem that there's a new poll coming out every week, every day, telling us who's up, who's down, and who's in the middle. It's either national or in the key early states. And it is a source of a really good debate, something that you obsess about, which I think I you should. I would never obsess. You don't obsess about never. anything. Yeah. What, do these, what do these polls really actually tell us, and how much stock should anyone be putting in them at this point? You know, to me it's interesting because I do think that these polls do in fact tell us something, but we have to be cautious, right? So we know if you were to average, say, the polls during the first half of the year before the primary season began or the polls at about this point, that a candidate who's been polling around Joe Biden's position, say about 30 percent nationally, who a candidate who's been well-known like Biden would go on to win the nomination around 40 percent of the time. I think that's a useful piece of information. I think it's also useful that the fact that a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who's well-known, who's polling less than 20 percent, and your chance of winning goes below 20%. So all of a sudden, by jumping from, say, 17 18% where Sanders has been averaging, jumping up to the 30% where Biden is, that may not seem like a long distance, but in fact, you more than double your chance of winning the nomination. And I'll point this out. With just a few exceptions, you really do need to be polling above 10% to go on to win the nomination, especially if you're as well-known as um, a lot of these candidates are. At this point. At this point. At so, this point. So then that means if you're looking at, at like just national polling averages, the only people that are above that 10% threshold are Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Harris. That's that's about right. And, and, and that, to me, suggests some real potential troubles. I mean, Buttigieg, who isn't as well known, you know, has kind of been hovering in the almost category. I, I would say he would still have a decent shot based upon what history has generally taught us in primary polls going back since the 70s. But for these other candidates who are consistently 0, 1, 2%, yeah, they aren't well-known, but even so, if you aren't well-known, you still want to be polling at least in the mid-single digits or higher. And the fact is, there are only really five candidates at this point who are really polling anywhere near where you would need to be based upon history in order to win a nomination. And, and the two, looking back, I mean, the two biggest dark horse candidates who became Democratic nominees, I'd argue Carter 76, Obama uh, 08, both wanted to win the presidency, obviously. Were, were they tracking roughly above 10 at this at this point out? O Obama was regularly polling above 20%. Regularly. It almost just doesn't feel it because that wasn't the narrative then. Right. It, you know, it's the difference between the numbers and a margin of error and what the data is actually telling you and what everyone was just talking about maybe around the, yeah. the lead up. Right? Maybe it was also the function of a slightly less crowded field. I mean, you know, you had, you had what? You had uh, Edwards was running as sort of the, the return exactly. candidate. Richardson, <clears throat> Hillary obviously was considered the front runner. Right. But it, we wasn't, we're not talking 24 people splitting well, the numbers. Right. I mean, you, and you mentioned Carter. I think Carter is kind of the one example. 
Now, granted, we don't have a lot of early state polling from 76, but, you know, folks like Jimmy Carter and George McGovern um, were not polling particularly highly at this point, but even they were polling, you know, McGovern was regularly polling above 3% nationally. Really, Carter is the only example that I can think of, and the polling from that year is sort of limited. But again, look what we're really trying to do here. We're pulling out sort of these outlier cases. Yes, there is a possibility that if you're polling right. at 1 or 2%, you can go on and win. I mean, Bill Clinton was polling there at this point in 92, but granted, Clinton didn't get in the race until the fall of 1991. So, I, I mean, the, the people Somewhere. who really go on and win tend to almost always be exclusively from the 5% or if you're a well-known candidate, the 10% plus club. That's why I'm like, if this is true, and I would never question Harry's numbers, <laughs> why do people stick it out? They, every, oh. most people who run for president are going to lose, obviously. That's, that's just history tells us that. But why are people, why do people stick it out? I, I'm, I am endlessly fascinated by that push and right. pull of like when they're pulling it, you know, 1% and less, and they decide to grind it out versus then when they find the moment that it's time to go, and it, to me, it, it, there's no consistency in it. Well, I, I think a couple things. You know, having participated in an unsuccessful presidential campaign that was kind of the inverse of this, right? I, I worked for Rudy Giuliani, speechwriting and policy, and he was very high in the polls and then disappeared, right? So it's the inverse of what Harry's describing. One, I think there's a particular indignity to getting out before anyone's actually voted, right? Yeah. Um, there's also a willingness to be lucky. Right. You know, you're saying, look, I'm in the field. Something might happen. Maybe I'll catch fire late. Have a big moment. Um, the constraining factors usually are money. Money. Um, and I think social media has changed that. And the example of Donald Trump has changed that. He's literally has given everybody the sense of if him, not if him, why not me? Mm-hmm. And, and you do so see that's some, a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, I mean, even in that top tier, as broad a field as this is and as uh, you know, you still have at least one person who's. How did Pete Buttigieg got in the top five? Mm. What What is it about no, New Hampshire that you obsess on? With well, well, you know, this? this is a key point that, you know, you brought up that you worked for Rudy. And a lot of people, I think, forget this was although Rudy was still leading in the national polls at this point, he was already falling off in Iowa, New Hampshire. Yeah. The people who were paying the closest attention to the race. And we know that 10 or 14 times in non-incumbent primaries, that is when the incumbent wasn't running for a particular party's nomination since 1980, uh, 10 or 14 times, the person who was leading at this point in the primary went on to win. And all but one time since 1980, the um, eventual nominee was at least polling in the top three at this point. So, you know, mm. you're basically looking at these polls and you say, wait a minute, the New Hampshire and Iowa polls are really mirroring the national polls. You still have that same exact group that's sort of in the top tier, the Biden, the Harris, the Warren, the Sanders, and Buttigieg, sort of maybe. And you just go, wow, this is the type of field that could really, at this point, although it seems like it's 23, 24 candidates, you know, given that there's going to be this real slice of candidates off after this yeah. debate based upon the qualifications, it really is that top five that where the nomination is most likely going to be. And won. I remember, and you never know what the truth, truth, true is in a candidate's heart, but I remember when Lindsey Graham, way back when, and... Uh, the 2016 primary when he thought Donald Trump was mm-hmm. the devil and kooky and crazy. That that Lindsey Graham, when he told me in 2015 that he was getting out of the race, his reasoning, I mean, there's always something more behind the scenes, but his reasoning was just, I hit a wall. Like, I couldn't go any further. But again, I'm just fascinated with, like, that is, like, 
arbitrary almost. I'll just say two quick things. One, people who are betting on a state not named Iowa or New Hampshire, you can debate all day long whether that's the right way to elect a nominated presidential candidate, but there's a cascading factor. So when Biden's people talk about a South Carolina, you know, a firewall, work. watch out. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and the second thing is, Take a look at the folks in that top tier, and you really do see that this is a Democratic field further to the left than anything we've seen in the modern era. Yeah. Moving on. Moving on. In the 2016 primaries, Hillary Clinton made the argument that one reason, and possibly the most important reason, why she should be the nominee was her electability. That is, she was the one best positioned to win in a general election. She did win the popular vote come the general election, but that did not all pan out how she had thought. (laughs) 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 Moving on. Moving on. Now, now, this time around, it's Joe Biden who has long been making the electability pitch, arguing that he is the best candidate, best position to beat Donald Trump. But what does electability really mean in 2019 and 2020? Harry, what do the numbers tell you? You know, I, I would say this, is at this point, he can make that pitch. He can, because if you look at the national polls average since the beginning of the year, you do see that Joe Biden's leading Donald Trump by an average of eight points. Bernie Sanders, who is the only other candidate who is as well known as Joe Biden, is still leading Trump, but by a lesser five points. And if you look at the rest of the candidates, they're pretty much either even or a point or two behind Donald Trump. So if you look at it, Joe Biden can, in fact, make that pitch because he is up nationally. He's the only candidate who is leading in the key swing state of Ohio. He's the only candidate who has led in a poll in the great state of Texas. He's the only Democrat who's beating Trump in Ohio? The only one. The only one. He was up by eight in a Quinnipiac University poll. All the rest of the candidates that were polled by Quinnipiac were either tied or behind by a point. And they're really interesting. Yeah. And, 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 And so for me, you know, if you're looking at that, you can say, you know what, that also makes a lot of sense because I've gone back, I've studied congressional elections since 2006, so we know in sort of this modern era. And what we know is that more moderate candidates, more moderate candidates, tend on average to do a little bit better controlling for everything else than those candidates further to the left. And as John was just pointing out, the fact is is that this is a democratic field that is considerably further to the left than past nomination processes. And it's not just John sitting back or I sitting back and sort of saying that. It, the fact is you can see that from the congressional voting records. This is a field much further to the left. So it's not surprising that a candidate like Biden, who's more towards the center, is actually doing better. And despite what where candidates are, right? Like who they're preaching to at this moment, it seems that we might not know who that clear person is, but that quality, that electability quality of beating Donald Trump is far and away what Democratic primary voters care most about right now, right? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, given where we are as a country. But but the polarization we're in is actually feeding into Donald Trump's desired playbook, right? There are a lot of Democrats uh, right now, as, as the party starts to move to the left, that are saying, you know, there's a temptation to say, give me ideological purity, give me somebody who can really fire up the base. But that could be very well at the expense of losing, of, of losing the election. And again, pay attention you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again. 206 pivot counties that voted for Barack Obama twice. She is taking notes, people. 206 pivot counties voted for Obama twice, Donald Trump once. 
Those are the folks who are going to determine the winner of the next election. And it's not, by and large, going to be people who appeal to the far left. It's going to be folks who can resonate with the moderates and the middle class in the Midwest. And that's why the Trump team is most afraid of Joe Biden, because he eats into that base. There are a lot of hurdles that Biden faces. Having a front runner first elected in 1972 is not necessarily a sign of a, a robust party. If he busts out with, I'm sorry, I'm out of time again on the debate stage. going to be a problem. But take a look at some of the underlying numbers. It's not just the Ohio number. Harry highlighted some Marist polls that really blew my mind that illustrate how much electability is a real deal. And to ignore it is just to, you know, tricycle toward a cliff. Are these just words we throw around that that voters, we throw it around like optics and things that normal human beings don't use. It's all like, going to come down to turnout. It's all, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> like, is electability, in how the questions are asked by pollsters, like, is electability the, just the way we ask it? Like, is there is there any room for interpretation? Sure, there's room for interpretation. But, you know, I just point out the CNN poll that we recently had, which, you know, asked, would you prefer that the Democratic Party nominate a presidential candidate with a strong chance of beating Donald Trump? Or would you prefer the Democratic Party nominate a presidential candidate who shares your positions on major issues? By a two-to-one margin, they prefer electability Democratic primary voters. Two-to-one margin. I've gone back. I've looked at these past polls in the past and past cycles dating back to 04. Issues almost always beat electability. And this year, it's the exact opposite. And the number three category that our CNN polls say the Democrats are looking for is an ability to work with Republicans. So while that may get you booed at the L.A. Democratic Party convention... And that's other actually... Democrats are slamming Biden for saying that. Exactly. So there's a real disconnect here. And take a look. The further the party moves to the left on policy, it feeds into Donald Trump's playbook. It is all about negative partisanship for him, and it is a narcotic. And that's why if all of a sudden you start to say the right right direction, wrong direction in the Marist poll for a generic Democrat starts to go in, 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 in a bad direction for him, the more they become associated with far left policies. That's his best chance at re-election. Yeah, no, it just just to clarify John's point too, it, it, they asked, you know, do you think the ideas being offered by the Democratic candidates running for president would generally move the country in a right direction? Just 43% that said that. Wrong direction, 48%. That that's a minus five net in the wrong direction. That is nearly equal to Donald Trump's net approval rating in that same poll of minus eight. That's how Donald Trump can win election in 2020. Branding yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, that does it for us, everybody. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah. That wasn't, just, that wasn't a seven-year-old that. child that just walked in. That was Harry, actually. <laughs> that was Harry, who has memories of vaudeville? I we're do. Gonna, we're May gonna, West. We're going to blow this out. We're going to blow this open. Harry's Benjamin Button. That'll be in our next episode. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, friends, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It really does help new listeners find our show, Forecast Fest, exclamation point. No, I'm, just, I'm just saying it is. We should always say it with because exclamation point. That's just, it's implied. It's <laughs> always. You can find us on Twitter. Sometimes I'll respond. I'm at I Kate won't. Baldwin. Harry definitely won't. I will. What's, what's your handle? Oh, at John Avalon. There you go. Not too fancy. Well done. And I'm at Forecaster Enton. And of course, when you do leave that rating, make sure it's a five star rating. We don't. I don't need any of that negative names. But, but stuff. should we tell people that we're going to be talking to him again after the first CNN debate here in Detroit? Well done. A little extra for you. A tease. A tease. You, you are a tease. Um, we'll give you a little post and preview after the big first night of the debate. So please join us again. And special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, and Emma Soslowski. 
We'll see you right back here next time on The Forecast Best. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.